IntelliKey Leadership Stories with Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Connect with us on LinkedIn or visit our website, pureintellikey.com. Here's your host, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to IntelliKey Leadership Stories. I'm Mark Stenson. I'm here with my co-host, Kirsten Gouldy. Hello, everyone. We're glad to be back again. Mark, glad to be with you again for another show. It's fantastic. And you know, as we think about leadership and conscious leadership and leaders growing into their full potential, boy, things have really been shifting and a lot of adaptation is necessary, isn't it, Kirsten? I'm sure you're hearing that in your conversations with your clients. Yeah, there is a lot changing and the the requirement is ever more pressing as you know all of the social injustices are occurring throughout the country there's a, a real focus on this conversation so while the conversation started 20 or so years ago there's a zero tolerance policy for money at this point and it's requiring companies to change rather than you know, people to change, to adapt to the company. So I'm excited to hear about the conversation we're going to have today. Yeah. Well, our guest is Tim Peake. Tim, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with both of you. Well, it's so good to have Tim as our guest. He's a consultant with the Conscious Leadership Group, which is so clearly aligned with the topic of our podcast. And specifically, Tim is a national news four-time Emmy winner. He headed up the NBC Next media productions back in the early 2000s. And currently he's working with this conscious leadership group, working with all kinds of leaders and groups and teams to evaluate and assess and grow into their possibilities and really teaching them the principles of leadership. And Tim, I guess as we get started, I love the fact that connecting with your news background, this idea of listening and questioning and having empathy, you know, with the person that you're connecting with. Uh, How does that apply to what leaders really need to be doing these days? That's a great question. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing because on the one hand, to be a leader, you have to have a vision and you need to know where you're going and you might need to hold on to that vision pretty tightly because folks might not want to come along or might tell you that it's not possible, you know, especially in entrepreneurial realms. But on the other hand, effective leaders really, you know, I like to think of CEO instead of chief executive officer as the chief energy orchestrator. Effective CEOs know how to set the context aligned with the vision, but bring people along. And, you know, the old way of doing that, command and control, basically ruling through fear. I'm not going to pay you if you don't do what I say. Increasingly, that does not work these days, especially with talent at all levels, you know, even at the lowest levels of the service economy, talent is a rare commodity. So you need to be able to organize and rally and hold on to people through other means. And what we find is that empathy, understanding, and deep listening not only allows folks to feel like they're being heard, but allows the leadership team to learn more from the whole organization and really adapt in more effective and more quick ways. It's so interesting, this idea of orchestrating the energy You know, it's not just to come in and give the uh, cattle prod of a pulse of, you know, hey, let's get going here, rah, rah. Uh, And especially these days, Tams, I'm uh, I'm curious what you've been seeing, uh, not only with a pandemic, but as Kirsten mentioned, social issues and, you know, workplace issues, all of these things colliding. Certainly the leader then has to take a, a new pulse check. 
Yeah, it's boy, the last, you know, year, year and a half or so have been amazing that way. It's just like all the bills have come due at once, right? Um, <laughs> well said. <laughs> and the, the knock at the door. I'm here for the rent. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the utility bill and the car payment. That's and, right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So in some ways it's past due. You know, we've kicked the can down the road for so long. But, you know, one of the things that I, you know, like, look, like everybody else, I'm sure, you know, when the p- pandemic first became apparent last year, it's like, oh my goodness, this is terrible. Like, this is not going to be any fun at all. And all the things I'm not going to get to do. And that was a global experience. We were sort of at the effect of this microbe, of this virus, right? One of the big things we talk about in conscious leadership is there are a couple of different ways to experience the world. One is at the effect of the world. Things are happening to me. Oh my goodness, this virus just landed on me. It shut down my economy. My company now can't work together. How are we gonna survive? It would be very easy and justifiable to feel like, wow, I am the world's biggest victim here. And you know, the pandemic is a major example of that. But what we find is most of us go through our days at the effect of the world, whether it's something small like the dog ate my slipper, real event from my house this week, um, <laughs> to, you know, the, it's raining outside and I didn't bring a raincoat, or the kids aren't thriving with remote learning, or the boss wants me to take a pay cut. You know, most of our experience of life is things are happening to me, and my job is to sort of weave and bob and, you know, flow with the punches and try to get through it. That's how we normally organize ourselves. What conscious leadership is about is could we go from that way of being in the world as a victim to me mentality to a creator by me? I get to create my experience. You know, most of us are willing to take ownership of our creator power for the good things in our life. I got that raise. Boy, my kids are doing well in school. Oh, the dog is so well trained. All of that. Um, But what we're talking about here is, are you willing to take responsibility, to take ownership of your creator power for everything that occurs, even the bad things? And what this does is a bunch of things. It radically changes the conversation. So now, instead of just trying to survive, I actually recognize I have an active role in what's going on. And so to bring this back to your original question about pandemic, about social change movements, you know, with the pandemic, one of the things that I've loved seeing over the past 14, 15 months is the immense outflowing of creativity from humans. Humans are immensely creative. Now we can't do that if we're like weeping into our beer, like, oh God, how am I gonna survive this? Another month of lockdown. Millions and millions of people and organizations realized, you know, probably at the point of the sword, we have no choice. We're gonna have to seize our creator power. We're gonna have to create our way out of this. And so from big picture things like remote work, right? I mean, boy, that happened so quickly. And people realize that actually there's some net positives here um, to, you know, the things I've really enjoyed, like all this amazing TikTok videos and, you know, families realizing that they actually have some creative talent and, you know, the outpouring of creativity that we've seen in the face of life-changing challenge has been amazing. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of what, you know, usually we don't tackle things as big as a global pandemic, but we right. do work with our client companies and individual leaders to ask that question, how can you shift from a victim to being a creator and use creativity 
to come up with your best solution. Mm. You know, as you're speaking, I um, do a lot of work through the Mind Valley Academy with Vishen Lakhani and um, Michael Beckwith. They all speak to exactly what you're speaking about, right? You go through the various levels of consciousness, but the ultimate goal is get to get to the point where you are tapped into the source of no thing, so you can create freely. And without the restriction and belief systems that you're speaking to, right? That limitation. But what I'm struck by, and I'm going to share a personal account. Two years ago, I was the CCO of a technology and telecommunications company, New York Stock Exchange Company. And there was an old regiment. They wanted to implement that I sat in my chair from nine to five and did not travel while all the male executives really never came into the office, let's be honest. And I was very incredibly vocal. I am not one who keeps my mouth shut. And then fast forward, pandemic hits and everything had to shut down, you know, call it six months later. So it's almost by force that culture had to shift because it couldn't survive if it didn't. The pandemic took the legs out of the old regime. Are you finding that to be true in other cultures within organizations where they now have to look at it from different perspectives? Yeah, that's a great example, Kirsten. Change definitely happens more quickly when there's no choice, right? <laughs> that certainly helps. But the problem is that in the face of challenge, you know, sometimes what happens is we go into a defensive crouch, both as individuals and as organizations. So in the face of a challenge, be it, you know, a, a turnaround in the market or something as big as a pandemic, a lot of organizations can really retrench and creativity goes through the basement. Like we're just trying to survive here. And one of the things that we try to do is there are plenty of ways to respond to challenge, but we want to try to leverage that and get people to, again, get around the curve and recognize we actually are creating this situation. So for instance, hmm, how, from your example, Kirsten, how did I create a situation where I'm one of the few women in the room and I have to sit at my desk nine to five and all these guys are out gallivanting around the globe? How did I, because it would be easy to blame them, right? They've got this old school thinking, there's privilege, there's, they see me as less than. The problem with that is, as I'm sure you learned, you can't control those people. Right? Nope. You really have <laughs> no, only control over one person in the that's world, right. and that's you. That's right. And so I imagine you did a lot of thinking about, hmm, how did I get here, and what do I want to do about it? Oh, were you? Have you been in my therapist's office? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. Yes, you're a hundred percent right. Because how do that? How does that behavior not repeat itself within me? Yeah. And I imagine you landed on something that felt like action, like, hmm, well, I could just sit here and dutifully do what they tell me. And I know how that's going to go, or, you know, I'm not going to do that. And perhaps you got more vocal and, or ultimately decided, you know, I can vote with my feet. I don't have to be here. Um, All of the above. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's so interesting, Tim, you know, even as you say, you're taking control and creating that, which I do recall this principle uh, in the book, the 15 commitments of conscious leaders. So I think I dog-eared this whole chapter because it is so important to really not be the victim. But in a way, it's also in response to the situation. I'm interested also in how you kind of coach and consult companies to anticipate, you know, can they look over the hill 
and see, hey, this is coming. You know, we need to create, uh, whether it's contingency plans or vision, you know, we need to create a strategy to prepare, anticipate, and maybe avoid having to be reactive. Yeah. What we found is, you know, one of the key ways to stay ahead of the curve is assiduous and deep listening. We want to be open to feedback. Now, most organizations, most leaders say, I'm open to feedback. I've got an open door policy, la, 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 la. We have a suggestion box. (laughs) Right, the old suggestion box. But what really happens is that's, so that's your, your intellect saying, yeah, I'm open to feedback. I want feedback. The problem is we've got this thing called an ego and the ego actually doesn't like feedback. Uh, The ego wants to hear, you're doing great. Everything's good. Keep going. The slightest criticism makes the ego think, oh my goodness, I'm threatened. There's a problem out here. There's actually a threat to my security, my control of the situation or my approval, all of which are essential for you know, the, 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 the psychic being to live. And so in the face of feedback, most of us do this thing instantly in our heads. Someone gives us feedback and we instantly ask the question, is that true? Is what they're telling me true? Is it true that we should be allowing more flexible policies for our workers and the ego always, almost always says, no, and here are all the reasons it's not true. Oh, it's been working well so far. These people are complainers, blah, 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 blah. They didn't really ask in a good way, like we'll blame the messenger. So the ego wants to shut down feedback. And what that does is now we're not learning because we've always got a reason to explain it away. What we try to tell leaders is, could you come at this, and this is the second commitment of conscious leadership, from radical curiosity, and use your higher mind to step in at that point and say, hmm, how is it true? So rather than, is this feedback true? How is it true? And to really make this a practice of every time I get feedback, and feedback is everything, right? One of, the, one of my favorite books is The Lean Startup, right? Which is sort of the dominant model for starting businesses in the Western world these days. And it's based on this model of deep listening. You put out a product, you know it's not very good, and instead of trying to defend it by saying, oh, the, you know, the users just don't, they didn't read the instruction manual or they're not doing it correctly. Instead of that, you say, huh, how is it true that we've created something where people don't know where the on button is? Or you know, how did we create something that people get confused about it? And so that sort of deep listening, asking how is everything I'm seeing in some way true is going to get us out in front of the learning curve here. So if we can get out of a defensive stance and into, just bring it folks, give me all your feedback, I wanna hear it. And I'm just gonna keep asking, hmm, how is it true? How is it true? So and it almost becomes this- an ingredients to that creation you were talking about earlier, doesn't it? You know, if you can take all that feedback and rather than just judge it, you know, true or false, you can apply it. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm, I agree. And what's occurring to me as you're speaking, and this has been something that I've been in dialogue about in, you know, with some of the leaders that I'm working with right now, you know, this notion of self-awareness and owning going from victim to that higher consciousness that you're speaking to, my owning of my part in it does not make it okay for the perpetrator. I want to be really clear about that because that deep listening has to come from all parties at the table. And if you're in a culture that is unwilling to recognize it, there it's almost impossible to remedy a real situation. 
So yes, there's my part, but the conversation has to go beyond my own experience as a female and really have a conversation and continue speaking to it. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Kirsten. You know, because there are power dynamics here, right? In a lot of organizations and societies, you know, there are people who are actual true victims. We would say, yeah, they're victims and they don't have the power to do much about it. And what we're talking about is it's one thing to be a victim. It's another thing to have victim consciousness. And what we find is when both being a victim and having victim consciousness come together, now you're really kind of flat on your back and you don't have much that you can do about that. What, what we've tried to think of though is, yeah, you could be victimized by the system, by your boss, by the police, whatever, but you don't have to believe that internally. And so our experience is if we can change that thinking, so I am not a victim. I have had a hand in this. Now, my hand is much different than a hand that you know holds a gun or holds the paycheck or something like that. But I can take my role and see, hmm, that could be the beginning of some change here. This is the wedge into that. Mm-hmm. And I might not be able to change the police, but you know, um, I have a cell phone. Um, my friends have cell phones. There are things that we can do to at least document what's happening to us. So changing that mentality begins to bring forth what we find is the seeds of change and actual greater creativity in the face of oppression. I mean, you know, I think the only thing that's really ever changed oppression has been creativity. I mean, look at Gandhi coming up with a radically new idea in the face of oppression from the mightiest power on earth at the time and completely upended them. That's the power of creativity. It's so interesting. I was just hearing on NPR yesterday about an organization doing bystander training. What, like you just said, what would you do? Can you go up and interrupt the conversation, you know, just by asking for directions? I mean, something that would be diffusing of the confrontation. Yeah, I love this conversation about creativity. Well, Tim, I also wanted to dial back a little bit to your experience in the newsroom and at this NBC Next Media Productions and thinking about the same kind of innovation thinking and creativity that was going on. And yet, uh, I think we all have a stereotype image. The, The newsroom and a TV production studio and a new media company is not really known for its touchy-feely, empathetic uh, exchanges between colleagues. But uh, what was your experience? Mark, what gave you that idea? I've seen a lot of TV shows. Yeah. It's true, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I'm not proud to admit it, but I was a big contributor to that. You know, when I first became an executive at a media company, I was a terrible leader. I mean, I really was. I, I was throwing as much gasoline on any fire as I could find. And that's what really walked, launched me down this road is I realized that's just not working. Um, that's not working for me. It's not working for my colleagues. Uh, it's not working for the agenda that, that I wanted to see happen uh, as a way of modernizing what we did. So, you know, really it was looking inside and seeing uh, the way I'm doing it, you know, trying to amass power and bend people to my will and rule through willpower and engage in classic bureaucratic politics, it's just not working. And my theory was, I know it's not working for me, I'm not enjoying it, and it's probably not good for the organization as a whole. I can see how inefficient it is. And this is an opportunity for us not to just change the type of stories we tell or how we produce them 
um, to be a little more 21st century, but also an opportunity for us to change how we're organized. And if we really are going to innovate, you know, bureaucratic politics, the corporate nod, hoarding of power and information, that's going to get in the way. And we need to find a way to leave those behind so that we really can be more present with what's happening around us. So, you know, that's what launched me down this road. Uh, it was, and it, it wasn't noble. It was just that the way I was doing it, I was so terrible that it wasn't going to work anymore unless I changed. Mm -hmm. So you go in when there's drama within a corporation. What does that look like? And what do you bring to the table? Because what you just described is the drama, right? <laughs> like that really is it. So I would love to hear because it, you have some wonderful companies that have engaged with you, embarked on the journey. Like, can you tell us a little bit about that process and what it looks like? Yeah. Um, you know, a word we use a lot is drama. Humans love drama. We love drama. There's a multi-billion dollar <laughs> <I> industry. <do. laughs> right? Yeah, it's entertaining. Um, it makes us feel alive. We love drama. And when we're in that victim stance, you know, as we would say, below the line, the, the I'm at the effect of the world, right away we're in drama. And certain predictable things happen, right? So we're ruled by fear. There's a problem out there. We need to solve it. And so, you know, a very classical way that this shows up would be the, the corporate nod, right? So the boss calls a meeting. Uh, she says, here's what I want to do. Gives your PowerPoint presentation. Everyone's gathered around the table. Um, and because of the power dynamics in the room and because of past history, you know, maybe some people don't even want to be in the meeting, but they sort of know, oh, gosh, I can't really say what I mean here because if I do that, she's going to get upset. It's going to hurt me in my evaluations. I might get fired. If I get fired, I can't make a living. I mean, you know, my kids won't go to college. So right away, the drama starts inside. And so one of the things that happens is, you know, the presentation goes along. Um, it becomes the point of decision. Everyone says, yeah, sure. We're on board. And they give the corporate nod, which is really sort of a shaking your head. There's no way in hell I'm going to do this. I hope you forget about it and I'm going to find an excuse. Um, so that's drama right there. I'm afraid to say what I really feel because I don't want to create an upset with someone who could hurt me. So I'm going to nod and hope I don't have to do it. And then months later, we check in on the initiative. Nothing's happened or not much. Just think how much more efficient it would have been if folks in the room at the time could have said, you know, boss, actually the last company I was at, we did this. It didn't work out so well. I feel scared even hearing you talk about it. I'm wondering, you know, if we can do this instead. Boy, that would have been efficient. Now the leader has to take responsibility also. How did she set up a situation such that her people are afraid to say what they really think? And then me as an underling in the room, what's my part in this? How did I get in a situation where I'm now signing up for something that I really don't want to do? See, if we all take our responsibility here, then we can begin to pick it apart and maybe we can have a candid discussion and still stay connected. You know, it doesn't have to be a food fight. I could just say, boss, I feel scared. I disagree. Could we have a discussion about this? So much more efficient. And then even if that curiosity kicks in and says, at my last company, it was a disaster. Maybe we could do it a different way. And I, I can't help but smile because if we find humor in these dramatic situations, I guess it's almost a dark comedy rather than just a <laughs> drama. But we, we've all lived it. That's for sure. 
Yeah. And isn't yeah. that one of your principles, play and rest, to bring levity to the situation and into yourself? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's a key one that most A players really struggle wrapping their head around. Yeah, it's a good one. You know, first off, one way you can tell that you're in drama and at the effect of things below the line, as we would say, one surefire way you can tell is everything is really serious. Everything <laughs> seems super serious. So if you find that, and look, there are some serious situations, but it's like, I like to use the analogy of walking down a sidewalk, right? We do it every day, this three foot wide strip of concrete, no problem at all. Now, elevate that sidewalk a hundred feet in the air. Walking down that three foot strip of concrete suddenly gets a lot more difficult. And really the thing that's changed is our viewpoint inside our head. So can we have a serious situation? Yeah, we're talking about the future of the company here, um, but not view it seriously. Because when we get serious, we, you know, literally on that sidewalk, now we're down on our hands and knees and we're crawling along, we're in that defensive crouch. I was talking with a leader at a, a big company yesterday who's, you know, they thrive on innovation um, and they've done really, really well. And innovation is the key that's made them so successful. Well. They, one of their innovative culture pieces was we all work together. We come into the office and we work together, you know, much like Apple believes. Well, they couldn't do that during the pandemic. And now they're talking about, we want to come back to work. Now that things look like they're getting better, we want to come back to work. And the question is, should we have a distributed workforce? Because we need top talent and that's what they expect now. They want to be able to work from home or go to Wyoming and work there or be in the office two days a week. We feel really strongly that people need to be in the office or we're going to lose out on top talent. So I was talking to the COO and, you know, we spent a lot of time going around this and this was, they really feel like this is a bet the company issue. Like this could be the beginning of the end because if we stop innovating, we could fall behind in a very competitive space. And so finally, I just, I asked him, I said, you know, would you be willing to have fun with this as you talk about it on the leadership team? And it just stopped him dead. He was like, wow, that's a new way to look at things. <laughs> because one thing we know is that humans learn best through play. Mm -hmm. When it's really serious, we don't do our best thinking, right? We see a couple of alternatives. Whereas if we can play and have fun and you know try something as an experiment, learn from it, spitball things back and forth, now we're getting somewhere. So that's what we try to instill in teams and leaders. I like that. And Tim, on your own life front, you enjoy a good outdoor adventure to play, don't you? Mountain biking. I and do. Climbing and volunteer ski patrol. But what are some of the things that you get out of those activities? Well, you know, for me, one of the touchstones in my life has been being out in nature. And, you know, a lot of the work that we do with leaders is about presence. Again, if I'm in drama, I'm not very present, right? I'm throwing punches and blocking punches. So I can't really be my best self. And so we talk to leaders a lot about, could you find yourself and find that voice inside you, that North Star that tells you where you're going? And also listen to those little voices that maybe are saying, you know, you should look over here. You might be missing something. If we're not present, we miss all of that. So for me, for instance, I just spent three days by myself out in the wilderness, just being present with nature. Literally all I, I hiked in, and then uh, I just sat in a meadow for a couple of days. And it was wonderful being 
that present with nature because my mind would start to ruminate. I start thinking about things, relitigating the past or maybe daydreaming about the future. And just to come back to, I hear the stream running through the woods. I smell the meadow allowed me to be more with myself. And I came out of there with a notebook full of ideas. So that's sort of a big picture of how I do it. But we talk to executives about how they could do that just for a few minutes a day, again, to be their best selves. Well, Tim, before we conclude, I want to make sure that the listeners know how to connect with you and learn more about your firm. Yeah. So, you know, I, as you said, I work for the Conscious Leadership Group and we're on the web at conscious.is, conscious is. And uh, the book that you mentioned, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, it's on Amazon. We really like it. We think it's a great introduction to this work. Oh, fantastic. Tim, as we wrap up, I'm interested in kind of a periscope now, if we can look into our crystal ball. From your perspective, where is leadership going? as we emerge maybe into this uh, new evolved world where we either decide we're all coming back to work or we're going to be able to work remotely. But what, what's the future of leadership from your point of view? Yeah, I love that question. I think it's about connection. You know, in my experience, leadership and organizations, business is about connection, right? That's all it is. It's just about people being connected. And more and more we're finding the cost of the lack of that and the value of being connected. Now that doesn't mean that we have to be in the same room. We can have wonderful connection virtually as we're doing right now, um, but that we need to put more attention on connection so that then we can become more than just an individual contributor lined up next to an individual contributor. Well, that sounds exciting. Yeah, super exciting. And I just, I want to say thank you for the conversation. This is, I would say one of the single most important conversations we should be having because everyone's a leader. You don't have to be leading an organization to be a leader. We can be a leader in our home. So these tools are so important. Oh, fantastic. Well, Tim, thanks again for joining our program. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. It was wonderful being with both of you. Thanks, no, Kirsten. Thanks, Mark. Very good. Thank yes. you. Well, listeners, our guest has been Tim Peak. He's a consultant with the Conscious Leadership Group. As he mentioned, the website is conscious.is. Uh, Tim is a four-time National News Emmy winner, and he led the NBC Next Media Productions. Now he leads groups and teams and leaders from all types of companies to create more genuine connections and more sustainable achievement and success for all. Tim, really appreciate your perspectives. Thanks a lot, folks. And leaders come back again next time as we continue to hear stories from IntelliKey leaders who are leading their organizations to their higher purpose and their full potential. For Kirsten Goldie, I'm Mark Stenson. This is IntelliKey Leadership Stories. Bye for now. You've been listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and many more. On behalf of your hosts, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stinson, thanks for listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories. If you like IntelliKey Leadership Stories, I want to tell you about another podcast I host called Unlocking Your World of Creativity. Each episode features an expert from somewhere around the globe that tells us about how they get inspired, how they organize their ideas, and how they gain the confidence and connections to get their work out into the world. From singer-songwriters to entrepreneurs, 
on topics like data analytics to hotel management. We talk to experts from Milan and Oslo, Buenos Aires and Los Angeles, all over the globe to bring you the best ideas and inspiring your creative thinking. You can find Unlocking Your World of Creativity wherever you listen to podcasts.